Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Bringing you another deep dive episode. And uh, we are going to be talking about werewolves this month while we discuss the movie The Howling. Yes. And The Howling is a 1981 American horror film directed by veteran student filmmaker Joe Dante. <laughs> with a screenplay by John Sales and Terrence H. Winkless, based on a novel with the same name by Gary Brandner. The special effects, created by Rob Botton, received a lot of praise upon its release, as they were considered to be state-of-the-art at the time. The film stars Dee Wallace, Patrick McNee, Dennis Dugan, and Robert Picardo, along with genre actor standouts John Carradine and Slim Pickens. The movie focuses on a television news reporter who is sent to a mountain resort after a near-fatal incident with a serial killer, unaware that the residents there are werewolves. The Howling was a part of a trifecta of werewolf movies that were released in 1981, alongside Wolfen and An American Werewolf in London. The film's success made quite an impact on Joe Dante's career and played a major role in him being chosen to direct Gremlins, which included some references to The Howling, leading many to think that the two movies exist in the same universe. When it comes to werewolf movies, good ones are Slim Pickens. <laughs> This is the howling. It's true. <laughs> We've got to make the We've got to warn people. What do you see? The howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. What's there, Karen? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. White, played by Dee Wallace, is a successful TV news anchor in Los Angeles, and she's been receiving strange phone calls from someone named Eddie, played by Robert Ricardo, whom she suspects is a local serial killer. Working with her station and the police, she takes part in a scheme to trap him and promises to meet him in a seedy porno theater. There, he forces her to watch a film of a woman being raped and tells her not to turn around to see him. When he finally allows her to look, she screams, alerting the police, 
who shoot Eddie through the door. Karen is safe, but she begins to suffer from amnesia and can no longer work. Her therapist and frequent news guest, Dr. George Wagner, played by Patrick Mackney, decides to send her and her husband, Bill Neal, played by Christopher Stone, to The Colony, a resort in Northern California where he sends patients for treatment. Karen's close friends and co-workers, Terry and Chris, are still investigating the story. They located Eddie's apartment and learn that his last name is Quist. Inside, they find strange drawings of werewolves and newspaper clippings about his serial murders. They also find a sketch of a landscape that they cannot place. Later, they find an occult bookstore with more information, and the shop owner tells them some werewolf lore, including the fact that they can only be killed by fire or silver, and he just so happens to have a cache of silver bullets for sale. They visit the morgue to check out Eddie's corpse, but they find that the body has gone missing, and the door to the freezer compartment he was stored in has been severely damaged from the inside. At the colony, Karen and Bill find the place inhabited by many strange characters, including a very sultry woman named Marcia, played by Elizabeth Brooks, and Donna, who quickly befriends Karen. Karen's group therapy sessions don't go very well, as she's too frightened to remember Eddie's face. During a session, Donna calls Marcia a nymphomaniac, but Dr. Wagner defends her, even though Marcia disagrees with the doctor and will not allow her brother, TC, to be treated by him. Late one night, Karen awakens to the sounds of howling nearby, and later, she and Donna investigate the animal noises. They find a mutilated cow, and a group of men form a hunting party. Bill tags along and shoots a rabbit. He's encouraged to take the animal to Marcia for cleaning and cooking. While in her cabin, she comes on to him, but he refuses her advances. On his way back down to his own cabin, he's attacked by a wolf, pinned down and scratched and bitten. Dr. Wagner gives him a shot and bandages his wounds. Karen calls Terry and Chris to beg them to come to the colony. Chris sends Terry and promises to join later. Karen is grateful when Terry arrives and tells her about the strange goings-on. That night, when Karen sleeps, Bill sneaks out and meets Marcia in the woods. They have sex by a campfire, and while they bone, they transform into wolves. <laughs> the next day, Terry ventures out into the colony on her own. While exploring, she finds a landscape that looks very familiar. It's the same one sketched by Eddie Quist. A voice seems to lure her into Marsha's deserted cabin. While she's taking pictures inside, an unseen beast attacks the cabin. Terry flees from room to room, but the beast follows, until she leaps from a window, injuring her ankle. She climbs into the basement for safety, but the beast corners her inside, reaching to claw at her. Using a hatchet, she severs the beast's arm. The animal retreats, howling in pain. Terry watches in horror as the animal's severed arm turns into a human one. Terry rushes to Dr. Wagner's office and calls Chris. She tells him that Eddie's drawing is of the colony and that she was attacked. She's convinced that Wagner must be part of whatever is going on, and with Chris on the phone, she looks through the files to find anyone named Quist. She finds files from Marsha, TC, and Eddie, but Eddie's file is snatched from her hand by a giant werewolf. Chris listens on the phone while the werewolf kills Terry. He drives to the occult store, buys the silver bullets, and races to the colony. Karen confronts Bill about his infidelity after she sees long scratches on his back. During the fight, he slaps her across the face, and she storms out of the cabin intending to leave the colony. She makes her way to Dr. Wagner's office, but finds it deserted. She sees an examination table covered by a sheet, and when she pulls it back, finds Terry's body. She's horrified, but is then confronted by Eddie. 
Karen is terrified as Eddie transforms into a werewolf, but she finds a bottle of acid and throws it in his face, allowing her to escape. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, there's that handy bottle jar of acid on the examination <laughs> Chris arrives at the office to find Eddie in human form, but scarred from the acid. Eddie plays a recording of Terry's murder and dares Chris to, sh- to shoot him. Unaware the rifle is loaded with silver bullets, he dies when Chris shoots him. Chris meets up with Karen and they attempt to escape, but are confronted by the others. Karen is amazed that everyone, including Wagner, is a werewolf and they mean to kill her. Chris shoots some of them with a rifle and the colonists realize it's loaded with silver. They begin to transform and retreat into a barn, where Karen and Chris lock them inside. They douse the barn with gasoline and set it ablaze. They hot-foot it to Chris's car and escape, but are soon attacked by another werewolf. Karen is bitten and shoots it. Karen realizes the wolf was Bill as he returns to his human form while dying. They head back to the city, knowing that they will have to warn the public. Sometime after the ordeal... Karen is ready to return to work and she begins to give a report about her time at the colony. She's going off script, but Chris demands that they not cut away from her. She warns everyone watching about the threat and she says that she can offer proof. She begins to transform into a werewolf on live television. People watching at home have mixed reactions. Once she's fully transformed, she looks sadly at Chris, who shoots her with a silver bullet, killing her. A man watching from a bar exclaims to those around him that it was all real and orders some food for himself and a burger for his female companion. The woman is Marcia, who orders her burger rare. The end. Marcia, Marcia, Marcia. <laughs> oh, my nose. <clears throat> oh, my snout. <laughs> so The Howling was released on March 13th, 1981, and around 170 theaters in the New York City, Philadelphia, and D.C. Baltimore area before receiving a wider release on April the 10th. The film would gross more than $1 million opening weekend. In the U.S. and Canada, it would eventually earn almost $18 million against a budget of $1.5 million. I've also read good. about $2 million. Yeah, yeah, so low budget, high mm-hmm. return. Yeah. The Howling holds a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an audience score of just 58%. The site's consensus reads, The Howling packs enough laughs into its lycanthropic carnage to distinguish it from other werewolf entries, with impressive visual effects adding some bite. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars, calling it the silliest film... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) the silliest film seen in some time. He did say that special effects were good and might be worth your money. Surprisingly, Gene Siskel liked the movie and gave it three and a half stars. Okay, well. Finally coming around, Gene. I know. (laughs) Variety praised both the film's sense of humor and its traditional approach to horror. Kim Newman, in his 1988 book Nightmare Movies, called The Howling a brisk chiller that effortlessly revives the prowling through misty forest genre and called Picardo's transformation sequence the movie's most impressive werewolf monster. Mm. A series consisting of seven sequels arose from the film's success. A remake is currently in development for Netflix with Andy Muschietti, uh, who is the director of Mama, It, and It Chapter 2 is set to direct it. Yeah. I'm super excited to see what he does with that. Of course. The film won 
at least one major award at the Saturn Awards in 1980, the year before its release, because at the time the Saturn Awards weren't going by the calendar year, at least for that one. But it won Best Horror Film. It was also nominated for Best Makeup Effects and Best Special Effects. And I did some research on the Saturn Awards, and I think this is the only time that a movie has won something, at least in its history, that you know before it was actually released yeah. to mainstream audiences. I thought we also covered something recently that got it before it was released. I didn't see anything when I was looking, but I mean, I could have missed it, but I just found it so odd that, you know, this movie was awarded this before. It might've been Jaws. (laughs) What? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the, the characters and the actors in this movie. Um, I know that Dee Wallace as Karen White was actually one of kind of the scream Queens in the early eighties. Uh, she'd been in two other films, including Cujo and I think the original The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, so she was in that. Um, and E.T. Cujo, I, yeah, she was in E.T. Cujo came out after this. I mean, she she's she likes making horror movies. She's been in a lot. You know, I think I, she's not a stranger to horror fans, yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that most people, when they think of D. Wallace, will probably place her in the Cujo E.T. movies, right? Mm-hmm. And not The Howling. Yeah. So. But there's a huge cast in this movie, a lot of speaking roles. I mean, it, we I just on my notes here, I've only put about maybe a third or half of them. And a lot of them I don't really know from other things besides, you know, like Robert Picardo, who I loved later on as Meg, <laughs> Meg the Witch and, and Legend, as well as, of <laughs> course, his role at, later on as the hologram doctor, holographic doctor in, in Voyager, Star Trek Voyager. And that's where I know him from because my husband loves Star Trek and Voyager's his favorite like iteration of that. Mm-hmm. And so I just know him from that. I didn't even place him in this movie. And I've seen oh. this movie many times. Yeah, it's so. hard to see his face in any of the scenes he's in, really, because he's kind of, you don't really see him in the porno theater as the serial killer. And you, later on, you don't really see his face because he's kind of filmed far away. And then he mm-hmm. transforms into a werewolf, you know? Yeah. And so it's it's a little difficult to see him, but it's like him in this movie versus him as Meg, the swamp witch and legend versus him and <laughs> Voyager versus him as the cowboy in inner space. Also, you know, a Joe Dante film that I love, a Dante movie, yeah. you know, is four completely. You'd think they were four completely different actors. I love Robert Ricardo. He obviously is like very like well-trained and a good seasoned actor. He's been in a lot of things. He can do a lot of things. He can be funny. He can be scary. And I mean, and, He's usually like a side character, right? And I I really appreciate that from him. Yeah. I just looked something up and D. Wallace is also in Critters. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, she like I said, she was a screen queen in the in the early eighties. Um, mm-hmm. you know, until she kind of I guess dropped out of the genre or dropped out of film, you know, pop culture you know was zeitgeist or whatever you want to say uh later on because i don't remember her much from anything in the 90s or or later no i mean i I think that she's like gaining some more ground these days but Mm -hmm. in a nostalgia way um patrick mcney in this i mean like he's someone else that we've talked about before especially on patreon episodes when we talked about um waxwork Mm -hmm. because he plays a pretty large part in that movie but he's no stranger to genre work at all. And a lot of these people aren't, and intentionally so, especially if you talk about the, you know, the veterans like John Carradine, or John mm-hmm. Carradine, however you want to say it, you know, uh, in this movie is Erie Kenton. Not that you'd remember the name because he only has a few bit, you know, scenes, but he's placed in this movie very intentionally. 
as with Slim Pickens and some others, right? And there's a, a slew of cameos of horror film directors that we'll uh, mention mm-hmm. a little bit later. Um, what did you think about Elizabeth Brooks, who played Marsha in this movie? I liked her. I was kind of wondering why I didn't remember her from anything else. And looking at her filmography, there's really not much for me to to really know. Yeah, I don't. I can't remember her from other things that I've seen. Um, but I think that she does a good job in this movie playing like the sultry woman right yeah but it's almost Free with like her sexuality character she fills that meg foster kind of role and so it's like meg foster probably took a lot of her roles quite honestly <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually i could see meg foster playing that exactly a <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um another standout for me in this i think uh, is the character of terry fisher right because a lot of the really good horror moments revolve around that character mm-hmm. played by Belinda Belaski. Yeah. Right. Um, and she's Karen she's, White's best friend who comes, who right. tries to come to the rescue. Mm-hmm. Tries, tries being the operative word. Yeah. And along with her boyfriend um, played it's Chris Halloran played by Dennis Dugan. They're sort of like working together to solve the mystery while Karen is going off to, you know, fix herself at the colony. Yeah. Right. She leaves them to do all the fucking hard work. And it's really Chris <laughs> so. and Terry that do most of the heavy lifting as far as fighting these werewolves. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Chris gets, you know, to be the hero of the film, essentially, right? Yeah, he lights the thing on fire. He's shooting people with silver bullets. Meanwhile, Terry was probably one of the most successful in a one-on-one encounter, where she cut off one of the, the thing's arms, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, we also have uh, Bill, right? Who's uh, Karen's husband, and it's played by Christopher Stone, who at the time was Dee Wallace's husband in real life. So, Well, thank you for eliminating one of my fun facts. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, the the fucking slap scene in this movie where he, like, belts her across the face during that fight. I've always, like, thought, oh, my God, that's, like, so hard and it seems so real. And then when you think about that, the two were actually married at the time. I was just like, he maybe wasn't acting so hard. He really wanted to beat his wife. I don't want to know. Which is terrible. Yeah. So, I, I was surprised kind of moving on to the background of this film that it was a novel a novel that i haven't read yeah actually so it's obviously been noted the film has been noted for its semi-humorous screenplay but it was adapted from the more straightforward novel by gary brandner which we mentioned kind of before the you know the synopsis and everything at the top of the episode but it was first published in 1977 so it took about four or five years you know before the film was made but you know, I, I haven't heard much about that, that this film was based on a novel. And I know that it's very, very different. And I know that the sequel, I think the fourth, the fourth film in the series is more of a straight, a straight translation from, from the novel. Yeah. I've, I've seen some of the sequels here or there. And I, I, I really, I haven't read the novel and I kind of want to now, but I did some looking on audible and I couldn't find it to listen to. So, and I'm not even quite sure if it's in print at this point. So mm-hmm. it may take some doing to, to find, but I kind of want to see what that, that novel's like. One of the fun facts I actually almost included for later on in the episode was that um, Joe Dante would go around and talk, you know? And so he was talking about his experience making this, this film and how much he hated the original novel and how much he changed it for the better. And it happened that Gary Bradner was in the audience 
<laughs> and I think this was a TV interview and, and he was answering questions. And so he actually mentioned, uh, oh, so you didn't like the book because I'm the author, you know, and that was actually I haven't looked up to see if you can find that on YouTube or anything. But I thought that was hilarious. I mean, so we, we can talk about the translation from novel to screen for a minute in this, because I know that uh, Terrence Winkless wrote the screenplay and Joe Dante came on to direct and then he brought in John Sayles and he was like, no, rewrite the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And Dante and Sayles had worked together previously on Piranha <laughs> yep. and they, they had a, they had a relationship going already. And um, I don't know. I mean, like I, I obviously haven't read, you know, scripts, so I have no idea what the differences were, but I like John Sales's horror writing. I think he makes a good, fun horror movie, almost like a trashy horror movie sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm totally okay with it. Yeah. I think that the end product was was good. Um, have you se- you've seen the original Piranha? No. Right? The Dante Piranha? Oh, my God. No. Like, it's fantastic. <laughs> for, like, for the worst ways, okay. you know? I, just, I really, really Well, there's like a it. reason why I said veteran student filmmaker Joe Dante, you know? And, of course, I mean, like, we could talk about Dante now for a minute, too. There there are very few directors that sort of, like, work in or around the horror genre that I like most of their oeuvre. And Dante's one of them. I mean, I, I even John Carpenter, there are movies that I pick out and say that I just don't care for these, right? But if, if Dante makes a movie, more than likely, I appreciate it or like it or i've seen it many times so things like piranha or the burbs right he's done some like horror adjacent comedy work like matinee and like explorers like which is really good like 80s sci-fi inner space yeah i mean like i really really enjoy a lot of his work and recently he's done um nightmare cinema which is streaming on shutter which is like a horror anthology right and like he's He's a good director. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, calling <clears throat> he is kind of a student student director, right? He worked under Roger Corman, for God's sakes. And mm-hmm. if you're working for Roger Corman, you're going to know how to make a movie fast and cheap and you just get the job done no matter what. And I think he really took that idea and ran with it for a lot of his career. I'm glad you mentioned so. that because, you know, Corman also kind of started and Joe Dante really kind of started the, the career of uh, James Cameron. Right. Mm-hmm. So he was like a, a puppeteer and like a technical director and everything for some of these movies for Roger Corman. And then um, of course on Piranha to the point where he got to direct Piranha two and then the studio kind of took it away from him. But I just thought that was interesting because a lot of, of beginnings are happening, you know, in this time period in this late seventies and, and early eighties time period. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of these directors we look back on, we look back on now and we, we look at the work that they've done since then. And we're like in awe of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Dante Cameron and the like. Right. But I mean, Joe Dante with the, with Piranha and then Cameron with Piranha to the spawning, I think are like mm-hmm. just really good examples of like learning on a set and really crafting, really honing your craft and experience. I really like Joe Dante's uh, partnerships with Spielberg. Like inner space, like inner space yeah. gremlins, right? Yeah. Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and I know that he got the job for gremlins sort of based on the howling mm-hmm. like spielberg saw what he he did with this movie future effects and yeah and sort of gave him you know gremlins to work on and i i love the shit out of gremlins <laughs> like really yeah i just do i really like joe dante i can't even think of a joe dante movie that i don't like at this point and that's pretty rare for me when it comes to directors sure speaking of how this kind of diverted from the original novel um and turned it into kind of more of a semi-humorous screenplay there's a lot of in-joke references in the film right 
kind of dry references, including a lot of references to wolves, like, you know, just things like that are obvious, like the big bad wolf from Little Boy Blue in 1936, seen on TV. Sheriff Newfield is seen eating wolf brand chili. And then later on, you can see wolf brand chili on the sets later on. And, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's just like references to Wolfman Jack as the disc, disc jockey. Um, there's wolf and brand medicine on the counter, you know. Uh, where Karen picks up the infamous jar of acid <laughs> and um, there's just like a lot of pictures and, and, you know, paintings and stuff of wolves killing sheep and like everything else in the movie. Right. They're just they're They're all over the place. And then well, there's even some clips of like the original Wolfman, right? Like yeah. from oh, Universal, yeah. like thrown in there. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a picture of who played Wolfman, the original in the silent. I think it's Lon Chaney. Yeah, Lon Chaney. His, his picture was literally on the wall. Um, you know, in one of those uh, bedroom or living rooms uh, scenes, I think of one of the characters. So they're all over the place. And I really appreciate that in this movie too. I know. Cause like, I'm going to go ahead and say it at, at least at this point in the conversation, like I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of werewolf movies. No, me either. You know, um, I don't, I don't really find them scary. Nope. And as far as like monsters go, it's kind of like my least favorite, right? Especially because there's, there's so many like time constraints about being a werewolf, right? Like it's usually, you know, a full moon. So like once a month or a couple times a month, you turn into this monster, right? And, you know, that's all we have to deal with. And to me, that's just not very frightening and not very, you know, interesting as a monster but in this movie it's different like he's taken all these things that he's giving nods to and he changes it right so werewolves can change whatever the fuck they want and yeah whenever they want you know in dante's world it could be in the middle of the fucking day you know on like november the 15th and they're like i'm gonna be a wolf and you know they can just do it and to me that's frightening you know and you just don't see that very often in werewolf movies especially in the other ones that came out around the same time as the howling i know that landis is an american werewolf in london which i think is a very good movie um which I'm sure we'll deep dive into at some point. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try my hardest to not compare them throughout this episode. Right. It still, you know, falls on those like formulaic conventions of when a werewolf is a werewolf. And I just appreciate this a whole lot more. I find it a whole lot scarier. Oh, yeah. I, li- I liked it a lot that they loosened the rules here. And, and honestly, this is one of the better, and we'll get more into the visual effects later, of course, but a lot of the time to me, werewolves look silly. They, they either just look completely fake or they look muppety to me and and even sometimes <laughs> in this film they look a little muppety to me yeah you know and they just don't look frightening at all you know and you know i i did i enjoy when you're trying to do like a human turning into something that that when they turn into like demons or hell a fly you know or something else uh versus something that's already kind of has a face you know they just they haven't really nailed that down to be scary for me yet i've yet to see a werewolf movie where you know, just like make it look like a wolf, even, you know, just like a larger wolf. Like, fuck, I feel like the, the wolf in never ending story is scarier than most of these, you know? Oh, my God. The Gamork. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but yeah, I think we got a little off track. And I also know that there's like a lot of characters and actors in this movie that are sort of references to werewolves, too. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of 
characters in the movie that are named after horror film directors who also directed, you know, other films that featured werewolves. Like it's uh, George Wagner who directed the Wolfman, right. In 1941. And there's some others, right. Like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And there's a lot of directors for all those like classics, like the forties, fifties, sixties, uh, legend of the werewolf house of Dracula. Um, you know, there's even from like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Charles Barton, you know? <laughs> so there's a huge amount of references from the the character names and a lot of uh, little cameos here and there. And I really appreciate that. I think that Joe Dante is a fan of movies in general. And I know that we have talked about other directors and said the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, if somebody wants to direct movies, they've been influenced over time and they've seen countless amounts of movies. And especially when we're talking about genre directors, they spent a lot of their childhood watching, especially in Dante's case, I would think, you know, things like William Castle movies, which he went and went to make matinee, you know, and he really shows his love of things that have come before. Yeah. And he's okay to like reference those things as opposed to saying like, no, my work is completely original. I think he's like giving a nod to us and saying like, you know what? I have seen a shit ton of werewolf movies and they all influence me in the, in the making of this particular one. And here's where I'm going to show you, like, I'm okay to give like homage and reference to. And he does that a lot in his career. So, well, let's loop back around and start talking about those special effects again. The howling was really notable for its special effects, which were again, uh, considered state of the art at the time. Uh, the transformation scenes were created by none other than Rob Botton, who I loved his work on the thing, which would, I think it's Botine. Botine. Really? Yeah. It's spelled B-O-T-T-I-N. I've always heard Botine. Hmm. Okay. Either way. So, Botin, Botine, whatever. Um, he'd also worked with Dante on Piranha, but Rick Baker was actually the original effects artist for the film, but left the production to work on uh, the John Landis film, An American Werewolf in London, right? And doing that mm-hmm. famous transformation scene, handing over the effects uh, to, to Botin Botine. <laughs> <laughs> We can call him Botton. It's fine. <laughs> I could be completely wrong on that, actually. So. <laughs> but of course, the, the most celebrated effect was the on-screen transformation of Eddie Quist, which involved air bladders under latex facial applications to give the illusion of transformation. Now, the first part of this, I think, was like the hint of this effect was done with the hand, right? When she severs the hand or the arm, really, mm-hmm. of the werewolf right. and it starts like bubbling a little bit and turning into a human. I thought that was done incredibly well. It was in camera and I was like, wow, I'm actually watching this happen, you know, which is really, really cool. I think it's important to remember when watching this movie and talking about like state of the art at the time, right. That it's, we've had, you know, what, 40 years since this movie came out and Oh God, is that long? <laughs> Let me check my math. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm 41. Yeah, I mean, almost 40 years since this movie came out. And, I mean, at the time, I'm sure that people were, like, shitting their pants watching something like this transformation. Oh, sure. Right? I just have a a love of practical effects. Mm-hmm. And it's, if things are done in camera like that. You know, I think it's fantastic. There's a huge difference, though, between the transformation scene in this movie, while it's very good, and the transformation scene in American World of London, right? I think the camera cuts a lot in this movie right to to keep the effects streamlined and in london it's sort of like there in your face the entire time right well i actually would push back on that a little bit because i feel like we're given kind of one point of view for a lot of these effects uh, especially for that hand transformation scene it does cut a few times but i feel like for american werewolf in london not only is it all in camera but it's masterful editing because you see it from multiple angles right 
And it's just really, really well edited to make it seem so streamlined versus this one, it kind of lingers a lot in some places for an extra long transformation. And so I don't know which one's better, but like in this one, especially during the transformation scene of his face where it's like a 10 minute transformation scene and she's just (laughs) standing there staring the whole time, not running, just staring at him the entire time. You know, you can tell this is, is trying to really showcase this effect. And I just felt like if the camera just like panned over just for a second, you'd see someone with like a bicycle air tire like <laughs> pump <laughs> just yeah. pump out this guy because at some point you know it should have almost been edited a little bit more i don't know like closer to the chest a little bit give us different angles or something but it's like constantly just like pumping this thing up with air and i would just it got a little comedic for me but i, I feel like to your point at the time this must have been extremely frightening especially for the length that it happens so i haven't seen the howling in a number of years maybe a decade, you know, or close to a decade. And um, I was watching it for the recording and I was just like, my God, this is a really long sequence. And I was just <laughs> like, it's taking a very long time for him to transform into a werewolf. And I mean, like you get some like shots of her, like cowering in the corner and being scared. No. And then it'll cut back to him <laughs> and like his snout will be transforming. And they obviously use like some sort of hydraulic something for that, you know, who knows, but I was just like, my God, it's like a 10 minute sequence. Yes. And she doesn't even back away until it's all done. And then her hand just like grasps a jar of acid that just happens to be near the examination table. And I just thought that was the most hilarious thing. You know, I will say, though, I mean, like with the length of that time and her just standing there being scared, I think that that's the point. Right. It's the point of her character. She's gone to the colony to confront her fears about this and like really understand why she's having this PTSD and why she's the, you know, an amnesiac and things like that. And she finally gets to see exactly what is, you know, causing her all these issues. So, of course, she's going to sit there and look at it. She wants to see it to the okay. end or whatever. But <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm just reaching too much into a character motivation. But I mean, like, it's long. <laughs> <laughs> it really that feels a little mental acrobatic to me, but um, <laughs> I mean I have to, to reach sometimes. But <laughs> I mean, because this this woman cannot even like go into her memory of this thing without shrieking and running away from a therapy session. So it's like the fact that she stands there for the full ten minutes before she tries to even back away. <laughs> you know, obviously they're trying to to really showcase the transformation, and she had to be there for the story, you know, to work. But you know. <laughs> It's almost like you really want a transformation scene that is happening during a chase. Like this thing is slowly turning into an animal while it's running after someone. Because I don't think, I think in all these cases, they're either alone or it's someone just having to watch the whole thing happen, you know? (laughs) And so I feel like it would be almost more entertaining and more realistic if it happened, you know, in motion. Well, and I'm sure in 1981, I mean, like that would be way too hard to do, right? Well, I don't know. Because they they really, I do want to say that they they did more than just prosthetics, right? Um, I noticed that they took, you know, they threw every trick in the book into the visual effects for this film, not just makeup and prosthetic effects, but animatronic and puppet stop motion and even cartoon for the end of the yeah. werewolf sex scene as a silhouette in front of the campfire. It was straight up cartoon. And I just thought that was really interesting that they were doing whatever worked best or at least whatever they thought worked best for these, for these moments, you know? Yeah. And I, <laughs> I really like the werewolf design in this movie. I it's mm-hmm. it's singular to me, except for um, waxwork. The werewolf in that movie is a direct ripoff of the howling. Yeah, right. The ripoff is a terrible word. I mean, homage is probably better, you know. But um, I these werewolves look 
unlike any other werewolves I've seen in in movies, right? They got those pointy ears and they're sort of like dog and wolf-like and they're super tall, right? And menacing looking. But at the same time, I mean, I would also say a little Muppety too. Like I would go over and pet it. I'd be like, oh my God, it's so cute. You know? (laughs) Well, it's like the, the werewolves that look too human, like they're like Wolfman, you know? Or the ones that look too wolf-like. It's like, what's the point? The ones that do a little bit more inhuman, like demonic, like this one with the really narrow Mm -hmm. ears and demonic eyes and things like that. Or even like the werewolf in Harry Potter, which is goes in completely its own direction, you know, where it's very hairless in a way, you know, it's, it's almost Mm -hmm. just like a word at that point. And you can make it look like whatever you want. I like the more unique looking demonic looking werewolves. Cause I think that's more scary. Yeah. And I, I mean, forever, if I, if I want to picture a werewolf, I will think of the howling always. Yeah. You know, cause it's, it's like, it's bipedal for the most part. It's standing up super tall. It looks menacing mm-hmm. and every other movie. I mean, if it's going for a more animalistic look, it makes it, and it looks like an animal. Even Landis's London makes it look more like an animal than a human. You know, I did like the werewolf from uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula when he when he transforms into a wolf. Oh yeah, like the the Lucy sex scene. Because mm-hmm. even that is closer to the Howling than a lot of other werewolf representations we've seen in movies, right? Except it doesn't have a snout. It doesn't really have a nose, right? It's all kind of a flat face. Yeah, kind of batty mm-hmm. a little bit. Like there's a, a huge like comparison between like when he's like a batman and a, and a werewolf right in that movie yeah. and I th- a lot of times i think when people make movies nowadays and maybe it's a budget issue or a makeup issue they they tend to be a little bit more similar to what we think of like universal wolfman there's some hair on a, a person and they call it a, a wolf mm-hmm. right i'm sure a lot of this for like artistic reasons but yeah So what did you think about the music of this film? I like it, actually. And I, you know, I've said before on the podcast that I, I hardly ever notice music, right? But I, I think the music in this movie is, again, another sort of homage to what Dante is trying to, to show, right? There's lots of organ and it's very, um, I don't even know it's what like, adjective you use to describe it. It's like it. a mix, right? It's done by uh, Pino Donagio, who composed the score, which featured classical orchestral horror melodies and church organs with minimal synth you know synth sounds which were really popular in the 70s and 80s right and I, I felt like a lot of the time it was way over the top when it shouldn't have been like there's organ music at the beach and then like in a beautifully sunlit meadow in a forest it just seemed like bad scoring and I kept thinking this the score is horrible <laughs> so the opposite effect on me I completely disagree <laughs> I mean like I I think that he's trying to create a mood and like sustain it right and he's already broken the rules for werewolves and saying that they can you know show up in the middle of the day if they wanted to and so yeah you're in northern california looking at this beautiful vista or whatever and you know, you still have to keep it scary, especially when she finds that aha moment yeah. of like, this is where it's been drawn, right? And that the organ music starts to play in the background and she's racing back through the woods. And I'm like, I really enjoy it. Yeah. And, and, and in the slower scenes where it is going through like the sunlit meadow and stuff, I am not being entirely fair because it is supposed to be kind of ominous and they are trying to create mm-hmm. kind of a tone. And he does that, but it just seemed like the music was overpowering when it shouldn't have been or wasn't there when it should have been, you know, and it just seemed like really inconsistent scoring for what was on the screen sometimes. And you know me, I pay attention to music quite a bit when I'm watching a film um, for whatever reason. 
but you know it is in in and of itself a very classical you know interesting horror score especially where it kind of has this meeting between like the the classic orchestral with like church organs along with some synth sounds right so it kind of is an interesting point in like film score history I'd, i'd say where there was kind of a meeting a melding between those um two styles and so it's a very interesting score i just thought it was scored as far as like technically uh you know, edited into it, and might have been the music editor, or the editor themselves, that just didn't know how to score music to a scene or something. I don't, I don't know. But I digress. It kind of reminds me of. Do you remember, like, back in the late '80s or '90s, you'd buy a cassette of like haunted sounds to play, like on Halloween while you're passing yeah. candy or whatnot. Yeah. yeah, and there's like like rattling chains Felt but in the background. Cheap. It's all like organ or kind of. Yeah, you know. And I mean, I'm okay with that, you know, I mean, cause I, I mean, Joe Dante made this movie for next to no money or whatever. And he was trying to like, you know, pay a little respect to things that came before sure. it. And the score really stands out to me as something that would have happened much earlier in movie history than when the howling was released, right? This is not a 1980s score. This is something that is like 40s or before at best yeah because if you look at things like the thing or even halloween from 1979 or 70 whatever it was 76 they're completely scored with synth sounds digital right right um and they're very simple compared to this one so it's like both and i thought that was interesting but i don't know i just had to mention that because i just remember thinking several times while i was watching this i was like what is this music (laughs) (laughs) And when I was watching it, I was just like, oh, I wonder if I can find this on like YouTube music. I was just like, I kind of want to listen to it. I thought it was going to be like diegetic where I was going to like pan off screen. And I was going to see some like wolf finger, like stopping a recording or something <laughs> from playing <laughs> behind a tree. I don't know. I mean, perhaps if I listened to it by itself, I would feel differently. But I think, you know, while watching the movie, it didn't it didn't take me out of it. In fact, I think I, I liked it more. I mean, if I noticed it for good reasons, yeah. then... Well, we're going to start diverging a lot more because we're going to start talking about how we feel about this movie overall, right? And so I had some problems okay. with this movie. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, but lay this is also me. the first time that I've ever watched it. And I feel like you, have, you might have a, a slight twinge of a, a semi- for this movie, for a nostalgia semi, at least. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say it's like directly into nostalgia boner territory for me. I I saw the howling. Yeah, well, I saw the howling for the first time when I was about probably like fourteen years old. Okay, something that I rented, and by then I had seen a lot of horror movies, and I was just like picking things up at the video store whenever we went to rent. And I watched it, and I thought it was super fucking rad. I just, I, because I, I wasn't a fan of werewolves even when I was younger, right? And I, by the time I had seen The Howling, I'd already watched American Werewolf in London. And, um, I mean, that was pretty much the only one that I really liked. Silver Bullet, I guess, right? But I, I really, really enjoyed The Howling, and I, I couldn't even tell you why at the time. I liked the story. I thought that it was interesting. I kind of liked the transformation. And this movie has a lot going on, more than just werewolves, and it really piqued my interest. But, I mean, so what do you think overall? It does. And honestly, I'm very kind of stressed out (laughs) in the time of transition in my life right now. So maybe it wasn't, like, the best, because I was like, okay, now I have to watch The Howling, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I was trying to enjoy myself, trying to, but things kept, like, pulling me out of it. And, like, for the first half of the movie, I was bored, you know? like and that's like it could be a bad movie but be kind of like like 
a good bad movie, you know what I mean? And I would be more entertained. But if it's like a well-done, competently made movie and I'm bored, that's like a cardinal sin for me. The first werewolf attack really isn't until halfway through the movie, right? And then it just, I feel like the movie is really kind of slow and then just kind of picks up, picks up, picks up for an incredible ending, right? For, for me, the ending is so fun. It kind of saves the whole movie, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I can see that. I can see the, the pacing issue. I I kind of like the Howling because for a lot of the movie, it's not a werewolf movie, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a, a good reason for me to to like it. I think like the beginning of this movie feels very slasher, like very early '80s slasher. Yeah, almost like cruising or yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, and it also kind of feels a little bit more almost like it could be going into like a procedural kind of direction mm-hmm. in a very way, much. right? Yeah. There's also dry, dark humor, but also weirdly self-serious at times. During the first half, I almost feel like it's inconsistent. But I feel like if I watched this a couple more times, I would see that in the first half more, you know, once I got it, right? I didn't get that and what they were trying to do, really, until the last half or last third of this film. So maybe if I went back and watched it again, I would I would I would be more into the the semi-humorous tone that they're trying to go for. I will say that I mean I've I've seen this movie, you know, many times, probably like five or six times, and I never laughed as much as I laughed on this particular viewing. <laughs> right. And so I don't know if it's because I've aged quite a bit and I, I get the references or I get the jokes or something, but I mean I, I found it to be a lot funnier this watch than on previous ones. And maybe that made a difference this time but yeah and and honestly like usually i can tell right when a movie is like bad but it's funny because it's bad this is not it right this is not that this is like a good movie but i feel like some of the parts like either are the the parts that i did laugh at are either intentionally or were actually done purposefully camp i can't tell i honestly cannot tell and i think i think that's dante Right. And so, I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. We'll just use Dante as an adjective, right? If you're watching a movie, you're like, oh, this is very Dante. And I mean, I, and the howling is, and I, I think Piranha is, and I think a lot of his other movies are sort of the same way, especially when he works with sales. Right. But yeah. And obviously some of it had to have been, you know, like the werewolf grabbing the file folder. That was hilarious to me. Because <laughs> yeah, it grabbed it mid-sentence. It's like, yoink. It's slow. It's really <laughs> slow and like intentionally grabbing the folder from off scene. Like she couldn't see this giant werewolf standing right next to her. <laughs> and then, of course, that long transformation scene where Karen's just standing there. And then that handy jar of acid. Like all of this has to have been intentional. I'm like, what is that doing there? I mean, but come on, though. It's I mean, it's it's handy. It's clever at the same time. I mean, she had to get away. They had to get to the, like the ending of this movie, and that handy jar of acid was there. So, well, what is that even there for? I don't. He's a doctor and a scientist, even though he's a fucking psychiatrist. I don't know why he has acid. That's a trope, right? Who yeah. knows? Who knows what werewolves do when they're humans? They collect. Speaking things. of trope, that annoying car won't start trope. Ugh. Oh yeah. I mean, we don't, do we really see that these days? I mean, we don't anymore, but I've seen it in so many horror movies recently. I think it's just like a bad order for me to watch this film in because this film came before a lot of those others that used it, you know, and it wasn't the first movie that had this car won't start trope and it won't be the last. It certainly wasn't the last, you know, no. 
I think some of the best moments in this movie for me involve Dick Miller, right? Who is a, a Dante mainstay and he plays the, the occult bookstore owner, right? We, we didn't talk about his character because he really wasn't much of a character in this movie, but he's really funny. I think he has some of the best lines in this movie and I just really appreciate him whenever I see him, especially in Gremlins. Yeah. There was also Karen's final transformation scene, which actually, you know, I think they were trying to make it look like she was a feminine werewolf, but it just ended up looking like a bug. <laughs> and I know it's supposed to be like this like exclamation point on the story, but I was just laughing. So um, I recently listened to an interview with Dee Wallace and they brought this up and she, she said that in her contract for some reason that it said that she would not turn into a werewolf. And they finished the movie and they didn't have this scene. And so Dante called her up and he was like, no, we really need to have this happen. And she was like, yeah, I don't care. And he's like, well, it's in your contract that you can't turn into a werewolf. And she was like, well, I don't know why it's in there. And so they, they made it happen. And all she said was, you know, sort of make it a little bit more sensitive, right? And not so menacing and really stay true to the character. And so in that interview, she called it the Bambi werewolf. And so it makes me laugh <laughs> thinking about that now. And oh my God, it fits. Yeah. And so I think I think a lot of that's animatronic too. They they got her for some yeah. of those makeup scenes, but that final werewolf I think is not even her in full makeup. But um, you're right; it does look like a pug. It's a little dogish, right? <laughs> and then she's yeah. looking at him, and she's like crying a werewolf tear. And yeah, instead of like the the evil yellow eyes, just got like big round blue eyes. Like <laughs> toward the end of it, you're like, I'm so mean, and they're like, Oh, I'm sad and cute. <laughs> so <laughs> single tear, Bambi werewolf. Um, but I think the movie needs that, you know, I think that if, if they were trying to end this movie without her turning full on into a werewolf, it, it wouldn't succeed. And I yeah. think that leads up to all those like viewer reactions, which I think are hilarious when the mom is like talking to those kids, she's like, kids, what are you watching? And they're like, the, t- the TV woman turned into a werewolf or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of Halloween three a little bit. Yeah. I wanted everyone watching to all of a sudden like start turning into a werewolf too. <laughs> I have some fun facts for you. Good, because we didn't have any on the last episode. Yeah, sometimes they're a little thin on the ground. So to start off, uh, Roger Corman makes a cameo appearance as a man standing outside of the phone booth. Mm-hmm. And then I was wondering why the, the camera actually lingered on him for so long after he starts his calls. Like, are we going to watch his phone call? And then it finally <laughs> cuts to her. She's walking towards the porn shop. I'm like, it's weird editing. Anyway, so D. Wallace. Uh, oh, no, this is the one that you mentioned earlier and ruined. Ruined. Sorry. No, it's okay. There were times during shooting when Robert Picardo was uh, very despondent about the hours he had to spend in makeup, unaware of his future, apparently. On the special edition DVD, (laughs) he remarked, one day after spending six and a half hours in the makeup chair, I was thinking, trained at Yale, two leading roles on Broadway, my first acting role in California, my face gets melted in a low-budget horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) But remembered for all time, Robert. Come on. Yes. Also, Robert Picardo improvised the line, I want to give you a piece of my mind, before pulling out a bullet from his head. I totally forgot to talk about that during (laughs) our favorite moments in the movie. That's a very clever line and a clever moment of special effects. And knowing that he ad-libbed it, that's amazing. So what the script was like, just pull the bullet out. And he's like, no, I want to give you a piece of my mind. (laughs) I fucking love it. God bless Robert Picardo. (laughs) Amen. So the last one I have is 
probably not the best, but the final transformation had to be done all in close up. Like, as you said, right. She's, she's a little bit of makeup on the set, but later on for the actual thing, uh, the final transformation had to be done all in close up because the movie had exceeded its budget by then. And this had to be shot in Joe Dante's office because they had no money for sets anymore. Wow. I think I also read somewhere that he, he spent a lot of his own money to like film the the end part of this movie too. So, I mean, he cared about it. Yeah, certainly. Hopefully. And I mean, in spades, really, because I think this movie is well remembered by a lot of people, especially fans mm-hmm. of like 80s horror. So yeah, spawned like seven sequels. So, And some of those sequels have the best subtitles, right? So The Howling 2 is called The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. Okay. <laughs> Which, <laughs> and then there's um, The Howling 3, The Marsupials. <laughs> which I remember fondly from my youth. Um, when it gets later on into the late eighties and nineties, we have like howling five, the freaks and things like that. Like this entire series of movies gets real fucking batty and they're fun to watch. So if you're up for watching some like really like terrible horror movies, like just start with the whole howling franchise and you'll be fine. <laughs> So with that being said, we have some questions to ask, like we do on every deep dive episode of the Film Flamers, and we will start with, is The Howling a horror movie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's also many other things, though, I think. Like, it's it's more than just the horror movie, which I think comes in with the werewolf parts. There's, like, we talked about some slashery moments in here and some very thriller moments and also, like, comedy. I think mm-hmm. that, and that's what that's what Dante does best. He uh, can take any horror situation and lighten it up with a little bit of levity. Yeah. So, were you scared while watching The Howling? Absolutely not. No, not at all. Not one <laughs> no. bit. No. <laughs> I think when I was younger, I probably was. I mean, the first time that I saw The Howling, I was probably fucking terrified. Um, because the transformation scenes are pretty fucking gnarly, and yeah. You know, and so like that sort of lingers in the brain. But, you know, watching it now as a, you know, 40 plus year old man, I just I found it to be really funny and I enjoyed it for reasons than not being scared. Yeah, sure. uh, So out of five stars, what would you rate The Howling? I rated it a three. And honestly, the first half, I was actually going to rate it like a two or two and a half because I was was straight up. I was straight up bored. Like nothing. Wow. It wasn't doing procedural well. It wasn't doing stalker slasher well. It wasn't doing the filming and editing particularly well. Of course, like you said, and you warned me about, this was standard definition, right? Yeah. And so everything kind of looked like it was covered in Vaseline a little bit in some scenes. And I don't know how much of that was the film stock or how they chose to film it, kind of a a little bit of dreamlike. You know, it it did that for the beginning, like city scenes too. So some of that might have just been like the weird upconvert from my TV. But I, I started to enjoy it more and more. I started to laugh a little bit more and more and I really dug the ending, right? It really sticks. And so I upgraded from like a two all the way to a three. And I feel like, um, you know, upon further watching and rewatching that I will enjoy this film even more. But, you know, to me, there's a cardinal sin of, of me getting bored, you know? So I hate to say it, you know, but I, I did end up rating it a three, which is, you know, I liked it. No, so that's that's higher than the meh two and a half or even bad two rating. And I will say that I mean, I think that werewolf movies in general can get a little boring, right? 
Because, I mean, yeah. like, the monster is so far and few in between. And every werewolf movie sort of depends upon its human characters, right? And if if you can't get behind the characters for whatever reason, yeah, it's going to make the movie a little you know, boring, a little slow. I would give The Howling four stars. And I think norm- normally with nostalgia boners, it would go even higher than that. But I... um. I mean, I like this movie and I have fond memories of it. And I think every time that I watch it, I notice something different. And it's, it's something that I like to revisit more often than other werewolf movies. Um, it's not something that I would show to other people. Like this is something that I keep for myself, but, um, I like it. I like D Wallace in this for the most part. I really like the character of Terry. Uh, I like that there are some scenes that are shot in the daytime and that makes it different from other horror, you know, werewolf movies. And yeah, I don't know. I just like it. I think it's a really good eighties movie. And I was also was very worried about watching it in SD and maybe it's cause I, I don't want to sound like some sort of like uppity, you know, movie watcher that everything has to be perfect and pristine. <laughs> But actually, watching this movie... Wouldn't want to sound like me. <laughs> sorry, this is not what I meant. <laughs> but watching this movie in like a lower quality rental on Amazon sort of added to the nostalgia effect for me. I was like, oh my God, because the first time I watched The Howling was on VHS. And it felt very similar to that, you know? And so maybe that also colored my rating. Who knows? I yeah. mean, if we watch it again later on in the future, I could give it less. But I mean, for me, four stars all the way. I think it's great. So finally, who's the hottest guy in The Howling? I want to say Robert Picardo. From the little I saw of him, they give him a little bit of stubble. You know, they're kind of in half shadow and, you know, all that. So I, I don't know. I just, I think he's the standout. He's got that, like, murderous, pervert quality about him. Although Christopher Stone had a nice ass. <laughs> to say. Yeah, I'm going to say Christopher Stone. I don't know. He just, like, he embodies, like, 80s health club realness in this movie you know so but i don't know i mean so i guess i guess him but yeah i don't know there are some slim pickings <laughs> in this movie yeah. see what yeah. you did there you see what i did well i think that just about wraps up our conversation on the howling and like always we want to know what you think about this movie you can let us know on social media at the film flamers on twitter facebook or instagram you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733 and let us know what you thought of The Howling or werewolves in general, really. Over on Patreon this month, we are going to be covering another werewolf movie. And we had another poll up for our patrons to vote on their choice of the werewolf movies that we presented them for us to cover. And you could go over and vote on future polls and listen to these bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. And on Shooting the Flames, we like to mention all the reviews that we get. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, give us a five-star review, a little snippet of why you like us, and we'll read that on the next Shooting the Flames episode. On the last one this month, we didn't have any, so let's change that for December. Yeah, give us a little Christmas present. We really enjoy those uh, those reviews, and they really help us out a lot. So if you are interested in helping us out in any way and you cannot become a patron, or even if you can be a patron, join us over there and give us a review be a wonderful Christmas present for us. 
That's right. We love them. Um, and we have some Thanksgiving presents coming for you later on this month. We're going to be doing a episode on Thanksgiving <laughs> about a murderous turkey. <laughs> so, I've never seen it. I've never seen it either. And I'm kind of excited. <laughs> I'm, you really? You haven't seen it? I have never seen it. No, I've never oh seen God. this movie. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited. First watch for both of us. I know that it almost never happens. So uh, stay tuned for that, guys. So until our next episode, we want to wish you some sweet werewolf sex <laughs> dreams. I didn't even wait for you. (laughs) But it was worth it. (laughs) We will try it again. Sweet Sweet dreams. I was going to try to howl, but I'm not even quite sure I can do that. No. Oh, that's much better than I could have done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh.